This is our April uh, 2022 huddle. This is number six that Connor has organized and produced, and we're very excited that uh, you're all um, you're all here to join us this evening. And we're going on on the topic tonight of standards in business. And so, the idea here is to set lead in nicely to Kathy's topic, but also to um, to really kind of emphasize a, a point that's very important. And a part of our idea, the impetus when Connor and I discussed this, is I'm actually in. New Orleans right now at our annual uh, Dean's AACSB conference. So that was really where the idea came from. So we're here with uh, 1,200 people, deans and assistant deans and associate deans from business schools all over the world talking about the topic of accreditation. So that's really where the kind of the idea came from. So Kathy or Kathleen, I'm going to introduce her a little bit more a bit later, but she's our special guest today and she will have most of the evening and a lot of chance for Q&A uh, with her when I'm done. And so just hold on, we're going to show this slide again in a little bit, but just to, to get you excited about her joining. So this is the, the Dean's Huddle, as, as Connor kind of introduced, and it's been quite successful so far. So it's for MBAs only and our close friends and alums. And we get this, a group like we have tonight, which is wonderful. And then we get in the neighborhood of 100 to 200 that'll listen to it, watch it, follow it. We put it on Spotify, uh, we put it on YouTube, and we allow you to kind of to podcast it. So there's a lot of different ways you can consume it as well as the live version, which we're gonna have tonight. And it's, we think it's been kind of worth doing. So Connor kind of highlighted this up front. So I'm gonna give a little update, gonna have a good quick talk, and then the, the rest will be Kathy. And at the very end, if anyone would like, we'll turn off the recording like we usually do. And if there's additional questions or things you have for the Dean, we'll do that without recording at the end, should anyone be so inclined. And so that's the plan for the next little while. So the Graduate School of Business, things are, are humming along nicely. And uh, as you know, we're, um, we're part of the, uh, the Alfond gift that's kind of come out here. We have the UMaine and USM faculty as part of the Graduate School of Business. We're hiring more people. We're getting ready to move into our, our new digs in, in the old port in Portland in, uh, in October. Hopefully, construction has started. I had a chance to tour the building on Friday last week and was really amazed at how much they have done already. So that's where we'll be. And those are the organ other organizations that'll be in there with us. Uh, so we're really looking forward to that and believe it's gonna make a big difference in all the things that we have going on. And so there's a number of entities uh, related to the University of Maine that will be occupying that lovely building downtown, including Connor and I. So as I mentioned, this Harold Alphon Foundation uh, grant has come through and we have some exciting news. We were able to meet our goals for phase one. So the Alphonse put a lot of stringent uh, requirements on gifts like this. And it's, it totals somewhere in the neighborhood of 400 million, I believe is the total amount. Phase one was seven and a half million. Phase two is 240 million of which 55 million will go into various pieces of the uh, of 304 street and the center and all those entities you saw before, including scholarships, professors of practice, and a number of, of things related to the building. So we're very excited about that as we kind of embark on the next 10 year phase of our building. Uh, we've been working kind of hard on a number of things as you've heard about, but I'm just gonna flag a couple. Uh, one is we're very excited, Mark and Evan Skinner alumni have donated $50,000 towards our first main MBA Academy, which will be kind of a expanded version of our capstone course, which will take place for the first time in May of 2023 with industry projects and guest speakers, eight-day intensive session in Portland around an eight-week class, and we're very, very excited about that. Uh, we have our, our MBA recruitment, so Julia Van Steinberg, who is our new MBA recruitment specialist, 
has been spearheading a lot of these efforts. And we're now meeting with all of our concentrations, all 13 of them, and really trying to ramp up uh, that piece of what we're doing. We're getting our new um, logo, and we got a new campaign from Vision Point that's now, you may have seen now, because you're all on the social channels, uh, some of our new imageries out there. So hopefully you're coming across it and the odd hits as we're trialing that over the next two months, and hopefully that's going to work well. On the rankings front, really good news in the context of extremely competitive and increasingly competitive market on the online graduate business world. On Fortune, which is the most recent one, came out at 35th, was a drop of 19 places from last year. So we're very excited about that. And the other two you can see there. All right, so that's a little bit of a background on the exciting things that are happening with the GSB. On this idea of standards, and so you know, what are they? Why do we have them? Why do they matter, right? And there's some examples of things there and people criticize them. You can throw the GMAT in there. There's pros and there's cons. In some cases, they, they may discriminate or bias against certain groups and privilege other groups. And there's a whole bunch of pros and cons around this notion of a standard. When you think about any kind of environment where you want to have some kind of performance, you really, they, they become kind of essential and they, they have been shown to really, really work. And so I mean, Kathy's gonna get a lot more detail about the importance of performance and the training, all the things that she works on organizations and individuals with. And so there's a, there's a lot written about these things and do they work? There's a lot of controversy, but a couple of the, the things that they really help people with when you're thinking about stuff is this idea of efficiency of selection. So we're all faced with multiple choices, decision sciences, there's a whole field around this. And they're really based on this notion of how do you figure out how to make a decision in the context of way more choices than we can possibly consume. We know from psychologists that each of us, depending how smart we are, can handle five, maybe seven, some people nine different options when you're really considering a decision. And a lot of people are lazy and just like two or three. So what helps you make that decision? Well, some kind of standard. So you're going to look to buy a new car. You're going to go to, to different magazines and JD Power and see what they talk about things. And that's going to be a standard that's going to improve your efficiency of decision, or at least so you think. You want to buy a used car. You're probably going to go to an auto trader, the blue book. You got to check different things. There's a whole standards everywhere we look. And so this idea of efficiency of selection is really important. The last one there, and it's a big thing in psychology and in marketing, is this notion of cognitive dissonance. And so all of us have this, you know, when you make any major decision in life, most people will have some kind of regret, whether that's buying a new car, putting in, buying a new house, getting married, having children, a whole bunch of things. Often you'll have this idea of regret or buyer's remorse. There's a whole bunch of terms. Like, well, standards are another way to kind of let people know that, hey, you know what? You made a good decision. A company like BMW, after you buy a car, they'll send you a leather jacket. They'll share with you materials, say how good they are and how ranked they are and how much better they are, how safer they are as a way of controlling your dissidents. In the business scroll world, where I am right now, we have this idea of AECSB, and it's like the ISO 9000 of business schools. And what does it mean? Does it mean that AECSB business schools are better than non-AECS business schools? Well, those that are, like us, tend to say it's the case. But what it does, and it may not always be the case, some are better, others have different methods of doing things, but it was, what it does do is tell potential students, or more importantly, their parents, that this is a school that has a level of standard. They've thought about who their faculty are. They've thought about continuous improvement. You're hopefully not going to get a faculty member who's teaching the same thing 
2022 that they taught in 2006, right? That someone's talked about continuous improvement, that someone's thought about what a faculty member should be, that someone's gone into the curriculum, there's standards to be met, and that they've it fits with the world that's out there. So this it gives you that efficiency of selection, that cognitive dissonance control, that comfort that you may be making a really good decision. If we move to the context of firms, kind of to lead into Kathy a little bit, well, there's a lot written about this, and this is just a bit of a summary. I did some kind of reading of some stuff of things that you can really think about in this, and, and efficiency is obviously one thing. Firms that, that follow some kind of standard, and it can be their own internally generated one or an externally generated one, tend to be more efficient in how they make decisions and how they use materials and resources and costs, et cetera. It can reduce costs if used effectively because you have standards that you follow. Classic examples are, are airlines like WestJet that have a, a model where they have one plane, one set of mechanics, one standard that they follow. They follow it to the T, they're hyper-efficient, they reduce their costs, it allows them to be a successful competitor in their industry. You can boost market access because people have more comfort in it. And in fact, maybe you find a way to be more open and reduce some of those biases that we talked about before. Staff and people are really interested. So often you'll see PhD students and their advisors say, well, I would only go to an AACSB accredited school, or I would only work at a company that's under this accreditation, et cetera. And so that kind of piece is very important. And then for investors that are going to put money in or invest in their, themselves or their children or their family, whoever's going to go to that school or buy that product, there's some assurance that you're getting good value for your money and that the bottom end is going to be okay. And you just have to look at some extreme examples. That's where I'll finish off. So look at the military, for instance. So when the military is recruiting 200 new soldiers, they'll invite in 1,200 and they'll weed them out. They set standards, whether it's running or push-ups or intelligence or strategic choices or ability to function as a team, and they'll weed you out because they don't want weak soldiers. Think of someone who's trying to find a cure for cancer and you're hiring lab techs. You don't want somebody who's a C minus. You need people... That are the, and you're going to have all these ways of weeding those people out. Professional and Olympic sport, where I'm from, this is a cutthroat world, right? You don't perform, you're out. So there's levels of standards are very important. So if you need a place to look, and I know Kathy knows a lot about the sport world, you could jump in to that particular group. And so that's my little intro around standards. So we can talk about that a bit later, but without further ado, we want to pass it over to certainly the highlight of the night. Uh, so Kathy's a member of our executive advisory board. I, she came when I first got on this job, I don't know, eight or nine, 10 months ago, she immediately reached out. We, we met in Boston in the height of COVID. So we had to meet around masks and I've got a copy of her book, which I've kind of gone through. It's really interesting stuff. Very, very successful. She's a coach, got a great background. The students love her when she comes to class and does really, really interesting thing. And, and as I kind of said, I was interested in her joining the huddle but you students asking for is really the reason why she's here tonight. So Kathy, a warm welcome to you and I'll pass the parole over to you. Thank you very much, Nora. I appreciate being here. And I can't believe it was nine, 10 months ago that we saw each other when we were in Boston. And um, thank you for, for being here with me tonight and inviting me to be a guest. It's, it's an honor to be here. And I'm especially excited because I'm going to be talking about one of the topics that is really near and dear to my heart, something that I, I think about constantly. I, I had the opportunity to talk about this subject really ad hoc about a week and a half ago when I was up in Orono at an organizational behavior class. So a shout out to Professor Manif who invited me in to talk about this. So I feel like I had a little bit of a 
dress rehearsal in terms of talking about some of this content, but I've, I've certainly woven in different aspects of this because at that time I wasn't uh, planning to be talking about <laughs> what we are tonight. So um, one of the things that's uh, pretty obvious in terms of team dynamics is the fact that it deals with people, lots and lots of people, and uh, no two people are, are quite alike as, as we know. The other thing about team dynamics that when I was thinking about it from the, the concept perspective is that, and I was going to use is an imagery of, of smoke, but I instead chose clouds because they're fairly ethereal. They move. Um, you're never quite sure where they're going to be or what formation they're going to be in. So, but that's what's really exciting to me about team dynamics is because there's always this constant shifting going on. When I was setting up to think about um, just defining from the perspective of the word itself, I came across a rather curious uh, little factoid here. And when I looked into uh, online dictionary.com, Merriam-Webster, Wikipedia, and Britannica, there really wasn't, uh, interestingly enough, a definition for team dynamics that I could find. I mean, maybe I'm a terrible um, researcher, but upon first glance and looking for this word, I couldn't find a definition for it. So I thought either um, this is really uh, bad or maybe I'm onto something here and this is maybe a new territory that um, has yet to be defined. And so perhaps I'm in um, a greenfield territory. And sometimes I feel like that I am because of the fact of the nature of, of, of the um, way that my, my business is structured, where I work with both corporate as well as sports teams. So this is a definition that was that was um, one I came across that I thought was fairly interesting and you can kind of just take a quick read uh, yourself through it here. But it, it really, I felt, kind of encapsulates um, what it is that um, I am focused on on a regular basis. And the fact that um, there are so many elements that go into team dynamics, that's what is so fascinating to me about it, because as one topic, it's kind of like a diamond. There are so many different areas and facets that need to be constantly looked at and polished. So um, as you know, just a quick review here in terms of how teams are normally structured. They are formed, and then there's the storming going on, the norming going on, the performing going on. And I was talking to one of my sports teams a, a, a week ago, and I said, after a couple of months, and this that would seem actually like a long period of time because most of the sports teams, they, they ramp up faster than that typically. They, uh, they took a little bit longer for a variety of different reasons, but I told them that they're finally in the performing stage. And so they were kind of excited about that. Um, but it, it's, it's really fun to kind of tell and, and look at um, companies when I go in to talk to them to, to, to define for them what particular stage that they're at. Now, because of the work that I do when I toggle between sports teams and corporate teams, my, my lens is a, probably a little bit different than most people's in general that tend to focus on maybe one area or the other. Uh, I like the fact that I'm focused on both because I can take information, my learnings, and, and cross-pollinate um, into the different groups that I'm working with. And I, I, I find it to be incredibly motivating, exhilarating. Um, it, it's very thought provoking. And, and you'll see with some of the information I'm going to be sharing with you, why um, it's, it, it, in my mind, is kind of like the, the perfect arrangement. 
So as I mentioned earlier, I do work with both workforce and sports teams. I started out initially specifically just working with workforce teams, and I had an opportunity a couple of years ago to work with my first sports team. And then I just thought to myself, okay, this is the direction that I want to go in. So eventually at one point, one day, I probably will specialize exclusively in working with sports teams. But my my heart and soul has also been uh, working in the corporate space for over 25 years. So I don't think I can quite give that up <laughs> for a while. But I thought it'd be fun to share with you um, from my lens some of the similarities between the workforce teams and then what how they compare to a, a sports team. And some of you may be familiar with sports. Some of you may know nothing about sports. Maybe you fall somewhere in between. But I'm just going to share a little bit of information here with you. So as, as you can see here, we've got these four elements there. Now, as a comparison to a sports team, they're fairly similar. Just some of the, the titles are, are changing. But um, and, and they all have they at the end of the day, all have competitors, but they may be, in fact, looking at different metrics in terms of how they go about measuring their performance. So in terms of some of the differences for the team dynamics, the the workforce is is organized mainly around a monetary structure and the age difference or decades that 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 get taken into consideration are much wider for the workforce than they are for the sports teams. There tends to be more of a hierarchical structure in, in companies, and they tend to, in general, have a longer-term focus. Whereas with the sports teams, they're going to have the singular focus. They're, and, and that's one of the things that I especially like about them is the fact that they are all focused on one thing, and that's winning. Nobody ever comes out and says, you know what, today, coach, I'm thinking we go for that that tire. Let's, you know, I'm kind of tired. Let's let's just pack it in already and let's just go for the loss. It's going to be much easier. So the ages of the sports team people typically are skewed to be, as you might imagine, on the younger side. But it's it's the thing that I also like about them is that they tend to be upfront a lot more collaborative because it's in their best interest to be that way. And I don't always find that that's the case in the corporate structure. The sports teams are also focused on a much shorter term basis because they they tend to you know have um, well depending on what sport it is some of the sports play in hundred, uh, like hundred plus games in the, in the baseball um, structure but some of the other sports um, many fewer but because of that most of them skew towards a, a smaller sort of um, span of time they then will have a shorter term focus which which causes the team dynamics to be different from the typical corporate workforce. So let's let's do a comparison here in terms of what the leader's influence is from the workforce perspective. It tends to be less emotional because it, let's face it, uh, we live in a fairly litigious society, so people are, are very conscious and aware of what they're doing. So they they tend to like be a little bit more buttoned up in the workforce environment. Um, the workforce team dynamics tends to be slower, and and that could and I'm thinking in this case of say a company even just ramping up, it's going to take them a little bit longer to develop their their team dynamics. The leaders tend to be a little bit more distant than um, 
the sports coaches, which actually will will tell me oftentimes that they um, are regularly telling their their um, team members that they love them. I mean, you're not going to see a CEO walk around at his company necessarily and go up to somebody, pat them on the back and say, you know what, I love you. Um, you just don't see that. They also, these leaders, um, they have a harder time themselves as just one person impacting the organizational culture and the motivation. They tend to need a lot more support to do that. Whereas by comparison, as I mentioned, the sports coaches, they're a lot more emotional. They can be a lot more overt. They can get away with that. They tend to um, ramp up their culture rather quickly, but it can also um, slide backwards as well, depending on, on various factors. They, as I mentioned, tend to be more personal in terms of their interactions, and they have a, a, a slightly easier time and advantage over structuring their, their culture versus the, the corporate world. So I have a question, and this, this is a big one. And it is, is one of these categories easier to get the team dynamics right than the others? And the answer is possibly. So we'll get into that. So why do I say that? And, and what is it that um, I'm backing this up by saying, well, possibly. So as, as we teed up a little earlier um, in the marketing for, for me talking tonight, Back during COVID times, as we um, are probably <laughs> trying to forget a lot about that, that period of time, but I, I saw an opportunity during that time to take advantage of the fact that there were probably going to be some coaches available because they weren't in session with, with their teams. They, they couldn't play. Um, they couldn't practice. There were a lot of things that they couldn't do. So a lot of them were really holding on by a thread and literally trying to keep their teams together by way of just having Zoom meetings with them because that was about the best that they could do in most cases. So I decided to uh, embark upon a sports coach research project. And uh, I really started this off quite organically in terms of my thinking. Uh, I don't know if it, there are any Brene Brown fans out there, but I'm a, a big fan of hers and she's a social researcher out of the University of Texas. And I, and I admired the work that she's done. So I thought, well, Brene Brown can do, you know, her kind of research, not that I'm at her level at all, but I thought I could mimic some of the you know, techniques that she uses for, for the research that she does. So I set about um, finding a partner to do this work initially with, and I found a gentleman who was an NFL player and then was an NFL coach because my intent was to... Uh, work with somebody who had industry knowledge so that after I collected my information, we could take this information out to coaches and we could partner up with them and do some more work. Well, long story short, he um, and his partner ended up having a baby. He decided it was way, this project was way too much for him. So he went off into the sunset and I continued. Now we initially came up with the questions together and we initially thought that we'd cover about 30 coaches. But as I got into this, um, one of the things that I realized was that I really wanted to have some more female coaches in the mix. We didn't have that many in the initial um, part of the program. So I, I reached out to more female coaches to try to enlist them. So we ended up having 51 coaches total 
um, participate in this project. And we had a variety of different types of coaches, as you can see, pro, Olympic, college, and high school levels. And we had coaches um, hailing from all over the U.S., and one from Denmark and one from South Africa. The one from Denmark was a, a soccer team at the pro level, and the one from South Africa was a, a college team. It was a men's field hockey team in South Africa. So my why, because um, I think just uh, another person I'll give a shout out to is Simon Sinek. He always asks, you know, what's your why? So my why for doing this project was to be able to learn more about team dynamics and to start positioning myself to become an expert um, by way of doing research and talking to and having opportunities to have engagements with coaches out there, all these different levels that could help to basically inform me and then have me inform based on their information, um, share that with other people in a broader setting. So I wanted to also find out about um, aspects of how they go about motivating their teams, what are some of the needs that the coaches have? Because interestingly, when I was going through the research, when I asked them questions relating to, so what kind of needs do you have? They said, wow, I think in my career, and this was repeated on, on many different occasions, no one's really ever asked me that. So I thought, wow, there's that's really fascinating that no one's asked them that before. So I also wanted to share back some of the trends that I was going to um, derive from once I got finished with this project that took 18 months. And I've shared back the information with, with the coaches. So we're at a good point right now. And I've, um, as a matter of fact, I saw one of the coaches today uh, from the University of Maine. Uh, her name is, is, is Ginger. Um, she goes by Ginger, but her name officially is Michelle Simpson. And she is the assistant field hockey coach of the women's team that won the uh, national championship in their division this, this past fall. So a shout out to them. And so it was really nice to see her. And I was telling her I was going to be doing this project tonight. Uh, the interviews that I conducted each took about 60 minutes, upwards of 120 minutes to complete. So if there was a lot of skin in the game for these coaches to take that kind of time with me and to be very generous with their time to go through these 18 questions that I asked them. These are um, just the, some of the logos. As you can see, uh, the University of Maine was represented in this research project. And interestingly enough, there were um, 13 women coaches and two of those coaches were from the University of Maine, um, both females, uh, one, um, Amy Vashon, who heads up the basketball team, and, and then Michelle Simpson. So, But there was fairly decent representation in terms of a number of different sports, um, at lots of different levels. I covered sort of a swath of the country, um, so it wasn't completely skewed to one specific area. And... I, I mentioned that I had them asked, I asked them 18 different questions, but I'm going to go through six of these questions specifically with you tonight, because these ones are more oriented towards team dynamics. And so we'll, we'll dive in here. And the first question that I asked them was, what is the number one element of what the best teams that you have in common? And um, it wasn't completely um, 100%, but a decent enough percentage to, to, to have them represent that, you know, the words bond 
camaraderie, chemistry. I, I had to combine that because that was really the, the aspect of the one element that they said their best teams had in common. The next question that I asked them had to do with, okay, so you've got these best teams. What did you do to get them in alignment to your success? What, what, what did um, that in, include? And so they said that, and this, there was a little bit of a skewing here. So one of the things I kept hearing over and over from them was they really wanted to lead by example. So they also had that they had high standards. They, they also, um, some of the, the, the top coaches in this um, research study would say that they had to learn how to be vulnerable. And once they became vulnerable and allowed them their themselves to you know come across as being vulnerable, that's when it was a game changer for them in, in terms of performance. But also being consistent. That was another big thing that they they needed to um, make sure that they they got right for their success. So I also asked them the question, what are the three aspects of your coaching have the biggest influence on your team? And the first one was passion. So now think about that from the corporate perspective, right? If you were to ask the CEO of any size company what their, what their number one biggest influence on their team is, would they, would they be asking, would they be answering this way? Not sure, but I suspect probably not. That probably wouldn't be the, the, their first word of choice. The second thing that they said was being prepared and consistent. Now, you could imagine that, yes, corporations are going to answer that this is um, something that is going to impact their, their performance and their team dynamics as well. And the third thing was experience. And the majority, um, I would say, of the well, the majority of the coaches in this research project it just so happens that they had on average about 18 years of experience. So these coaches are very, very experienced and seasoned coaches. And another fun fact about this particular um, project was that 25% of the coaches that, that participated in this research project ended up um, experiencing having the equivalent of a national championship, whether that meant that they won the Super Bowl or whether they won a gold medal in the Olympics, or whether they won one of their championships in their particular division of whatever sport that they were playing in. Another question, what category has the most impact on your definition of success? So this one was, I had asked them a, a question, which were these four choice answers. And they said, you know, not quite slam dunk hands down, but a large enough percent at 62% said team dynamics was, was something as a definition that, that impacted their success. Then um, I put them through the challenge of coming up with um, playing sort of a word association game. And the team dynamics word was one of the words that I used to see what they would say. And what they, what they told me was that, um, again, there were a multitude of words that they used, so I, I tried to combine them here. But it came down to relationships, partners, partnership, togetherness, teamwork, unity, um, what you might imagine being part of team dynamics. Uh, and those are really kind of, if you will, on the softer side of skills in terms of what um, would be required in order to make this actually happen. So leading on to the next question, what impact does team dynamics play in producing consistent, um, a sustainable level of performance? 
everything. The, the majority of them could uh, agree that it was an enormous factor in terms of um, impacting their success level from a performance perspective. But there are also some other answers, but they, they obviously weren't as highly represented here. So, so we've got the um, team, team dynamics is everything sort of in agreement from, from this particular research. And some of the key insight takeaways specifically as it related to team dynamics that I'll share with you tonight is that um, and I'll just read these out because it's just they're they're worth calling out. So there was this one team, the champion uh, caliber team has the right dynamics with the right dynamics makes this possible. And that was um, a quote from Coach Greg Carvel at the University of Massachusetts, who he has what he refers to as standards um, for his team. And he's worked really hard the last five years to literally go from the last place in their league to winning the national championship last year, which was really impressive. 50% um, of our games last year were won based on character, not talent. And everyone is, is holding themselves accountable. So imagine that like taking place um, in, in the corporate space, right? All right, coaches get too wrapped up in the wins and losses and are not wrapped up enough in building the individuals that, that come together as a team. So we see this quite frequently. I see this all the time in uh, situations where I get called in to work with a team that's struggling. And most of the time it's because of the fact that people are not aligned with what they're good at doing. They're, they're maybe put into um, or on teams or, or um, aligned with projects that, that just are not well suited for them. And that the focus from the leaders is too much in, in on themselves or in other areas and not on taking a look at developing the people and, and structuring them to be set for success. So invest time in really getting to know your athletes well, the key success element for new coaches. So imagine uh, flipping this a little bit and, and making this sort of more of a, a corporate mantra in terms of investing in your employees and getting to know them well. Um, this is a key success for for coaches. Why can't it be for 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 you know leaders as well? So developing your team dynamics is the best biggest opportunity for coaches that is not being fulfilled and would have the most impact on a team. Okay. Well, now having said that, let's flip this and and, and substitute the coach's word for the word leaders, and and think about that one there for a minute. So I think we've established here that team dynamics is, is pretty darn important in terms of performance. So, so how are team dynamics created, right? That, that, that's um, often a question on people's mind. I get asked that question all the time. Well, I've got a little uh, secret here to tell you, and uh, it's about unlocking uh, the talents of, of people. And the, the thing that you'll probably like best about this is the ROI that you'll get. Um, so, what this has to do with is a foundation of a, a, pro, a program that I use called Gallup Clifton Strengths Finders. Some of you may have heard of it, some of you may have not, but there are these 34 strengths that get identified. Um, this is a foundational aspect to all the work that I do with both sports teams and corporate teams. And it's basically uh, teaching the people that I work with another language, a language that in fact can help them to understand and express 
to others what they're strong at doing, um, not only to their boss, but to their colleagues. And, and what this does is it, it tends to, and I've seen it happen time and time again, fast track the team dynamics in a really positive direction. These happen to be my, my top five strengths. So the, the, what, what happens is that um, somebody takes a really quick 30 minute assessment, they find out what their strengths are, and then I leverage those strengths, teach them how to use them, use it through like the use of um, a new language, if you will. And, and here's how it works. So um, this is uh, me in, in Denali last summer, and, and I was really fascinated by the, the process at which dogs work together. And come to find out, um, a fellow Gallup coach of mine, he, has, he, he put together a really clever orientation of how to align people's strengths from a corporate perspective. But if you think about it from the perspective of the dogs themselves, the there's the lead dog and they're working harder. That's what their job is. There's the point dog that that's oriented. And these are in teams of two. They get, they're the smart dogs or the strategic thinking dogs that help keep them on track. Then there's the swing dog that's um, all about influencing the rest of the um, dogs in terms of what they're doing. Then there are the dogs at the very end um, closest to where the, the person is, is mushing, if, if that's the correct term. And they're really the dogs that keep the team together. When the, and um, the, those are the, the special dogs that have a certain disposition that, that keep everybody sort of glued together. And then you're going to be leveraging off of these particular strengths below from the four different quadrants to orient. Um, if you think about people and putting them into these different categories, that's what would happen. Now, there's another uh, team dynamic model that I use specifically with sports teams, and it's called human teams. And so I do this with my sports teams, but I'm actually going to be testing this model out in a corporation um, coming up soon. So stay tuned on that one. I may have a lot more interesting information to uh, share with you. But basically, the, the thinking behind this is that you're orienting humans based on what their number one or number two strengths are and putting them into um, either positions within a company or on a sports team in this case that are in alignment with what their their top strengths are. So when you think about it from the perspective of whether it be a sports team or a corporate team, uh, there's a lot of shifting going around and you've got to try to figure out a way to bring all these people together. So the method that I'm using is really the, the Gallup approach. And like I said, that's one method that happens to work for me. It's been very successful. And that's how I get everybody in alignment with helping them to get to the team dynamics and performance levels that they're, stri they're striving to get to. So what now? Okay, I I've told you this information. Is there a formula in, in terms of how this might work in, in a perfect world? And so I, I thought about that and I said, yeah, there, there could be. So this is the formula that I've come up with. And the formula works like this. So you've got, you've got to get the, a strong leader in place. Um, so that's a given. The communication has to be at the outstanding level. That's going to uh, um, help to breed and foster trust when there's really strong communication. 
that's when the bonding then comes into play. The camaraderie is starting to be built and that's when you can lead it towards the performance goals that you're looking for. So now with this information that I've shared with you, it's your turn. I want you to kind of think about having digested this information. What would you do with this now new knowledge that I've shared with you? And, and maybe let's, let's talk about some of the challenges that you might have, or you can, you know, have me poke deeper into some of the things that I've shared with you. But before we go do that, I want to say thank you for, for allowing me to share this, this information with you. And you are the first ones to see and know that tomorrow I'm going to be doing a, a very sort of soft launch with my third book, which is, which is uh, focused on teams. So it's called Inspired by the Wisdom Whisper. So tonight we're going to pick three lucky winners to get my book. Um, and so it hasn't even been printed yet, but I'll work with Norm and with Connor to figure that out. And now I'm, I'm ready for questions if anyone has questions for me. That was terrific, Kathy. Thank you. I, I can break the ice if no, and if if people want, if no one else is lining up. So, um, and you and I have talked a bit about this before, and this is uh, some of this the, the research you've done. I just wanted to, in the the coaching, I love how you've picked coaches because I mean, you're talking about the the group that's under the most the level you're talking about, anyways, the most scrutiny. Like the difference between one or two wins can be they get fired all the time. I've done yes. a little bit of research, as you know, in the hiring and the firing, much different business perspective than this. That's and right. You talk about your formula at the end. So when you're, when you kind of leave it, let's say you're meeting with one of your clients, don't give away any of your trade secrets. But when you're kind of working with one of your clients as a coach and knowing that the margin of error is so slim and you're getting into that formula and you're talking about those different elements of team dynamics and balancing passion versus cohesion versus just pure performance skills. Give us an idea of some of the kind of advice or anecdotes or direction you would give to someone who maybe is worried about losing their job or their team's not performing as well as it should be to keep their job, et cetera. Sure. Yeah. Great question, Norm. Thank you for teeing that up. One of the things that typically is, is pretty clear to me is that oftentimes the uh, adjustments that need to be made can sometimes be really minor. And it could just be that there's maybe even one player on the team that's having an impact. That's a negative impact on the team. That's, that's causing their performance to not allow them to, you know, bring home that W that they're looking for. And, and in fact, uh, I'm having that challenge right now with one of the sports teams that I'm working with and we're pretty late into the season and we're, we're still having some challenges. And a lot of that has to do with the, with injuries um, and the team, um, maybe not completely using the language the way that they should. So I've been having some pretty um, very uh, strategic conversations with the coach to assure them that they're really in a building year this year but that they're, they're going to be okay in terms of they're not going to be losing their job. There are so many good things that have happened that you can look at statistically in terms of this team's performance because everything gets tracked. And, you know, you, you see them on ESPN every weekend. So everything that they're doing is, is seen. So there are lots of things that you can look at 
um, to point to, to, to suggest that there has been improvements, that their performance is going in the direction that they want it to. It's just that they're not getting that W that they're looking for. I mean, they're losing some games by, by one point in overtime. So, but when you're, when you're looking at the, the number of how many wins to losses you have, and you're close to the end of your season, and it's not looking at, at the ratio that you want it to be, the, the, the advice that I give to the coach is to not be as focused on the wins and the losses, but to look back at what more they can do in terms of developing those players in terms of are, do there, are there different motivational techniques that they have to use with those players? Are there different kinds of conversations that they have to have with those players to get them to understand the strategy better in terms of when they're on the field? versus when they're in practice and how do they take what they're practicing and actually put that into play and, and execute that the, the proper way um, when, when they're, when they're, you know, when it really counts. So there, there's a lot of communication that has to go on to allow the coach to feel really comfortable with also helping them to get to the vulnerability level that most of them are not comfortable being at. And that takes, um, a tremendous amount of uh, conversation between us, also me looking at their their top strengths and figuring out how do we leverage their innate strengths to be able to um, point them and align those towards the goals that they're they're going after. And they may have nothing to do with the performance goals of the win loss, and it may have a lot to do with other things that need to set up their foundation in a better way so that they can have success. Um, later on down the road. Thank you, terrific. Anita, over to you. I appreciate it. Hi, thank you for, for joining us. I appreciate that. And I appreciate the um, sports analogies, especially. Um, I had the privilege yesterday of being on hand at Comerica Park when um, Miguel Cabrera hit his 3,000th hit. So wow. I am from um, just, just outside of Detroit, Michigan. So I had a question because I am currently interviewing for 11 people. We are growing out our team. We have where another team is doing um, monthly reporting on FTE. Mm -hmm. And so there's a new team that's being developed where I'll be leading, where we'll be doing daily. And so I was, so I'm at the point where we are forming the team. So that part was simple enough, but interesting enough to, to see where can I learn more information as far as when a person or when a team is at the storming, norming and performing. And we are expected to start delivering that um, daily as of July 1st. So I need to be performing by July 1st, but for those other steps in between. So is, is the question, what do I need to do in order to get to that? And that how would you define it? It was like just yeah. one um, screen. So I'm interested, like maybe like your website or one of your first two books, um, but I'm interested in seeing that so I can kind of track that progress. Sure. So the, the storming part has has more to do with so this starts out with the forming that's when you've got your team together the storming part is when people are getting to know one another um they're not quite there yet the the, the synergy isn't there people um maybe making mistakes or they're they're holding back in terms of um trying to actually productively work with one another that that's the storming part the um the, the third phase is, is when they, they start to um, get into kind of a rhythm um, of, of when the norming part of you're not seeing as many like hiccups and bumps and people are starting to really come together. And it looks like uh, they're actually 
working fairly collaboratively together and the communication seems pretty strong and there's there's trust that you can just kind of feel that's there. And once you're at that point, um, that's when you're going to start to um, eventually, within a short period of time, hopefully, um, see start start to see the performance metrics be able to kick in, and that you'll be able to count on the fact that the team is normalized and is stabilized, so that they they're not focused on all kinds of other distractions, but they're focused on the task at hand. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, really good and really interesting. Um, so Tom, just before I go to you, Egan had a question in the chat that I'll read to you, Kathy. What do you see as the effect or transition time or skills required and expected when there's a change of leadership on a well-established team? Question mark. Hmm. What do you see? So um it, it, you know, it can really depend. Uh, it depends on a lot of things. I, I would say one of the things that is largely dependent upon is how open-minded the, the, the leader is or the person that is going to be in charge um, happens to be. If they're, if they're not that open-minded, it, it tends to take almost double in length. Um, they may not even get there. there. There may come a time when that person actually has to get looked at as if maybe they're the impediment to the team's success and, and being able to go on. So it, it can it can take, you know, uh, generally, I, I see most teams, I can have an impact on them in about four weeks. That's about the, the, the fastest impact that you're going to come in with a team that's broken and I can fix them in about four weeks. That's the fastest I've been able to do it. Um, but usually it's a couple months. Um, there's, and it depends also on the size of the team that we're talking about. The team that, that, that I work with that took about a, a four weeks had about 15 people on the team. Um, so the larger the team, the longer it takes. Interesting. I mean, how Egan kind of flipped it. I mean, Egan and I asked more about like negative situations and he's saying he's a really functioning team, but you get a changeover in leadership. So great answer. Tom, over to you. Thanks, Norm. Uh, two questions. One's really quick. You referred to a person out of Texas. I think the name was Branham um, early oh, on. Your... Brene Brown. Brene Brown. Thank Brene you. Brene Brown. Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, the second question I have is in regards to coaches that are that are known for their short shelf life. Um, people I can think of in baseball, one would be Tony La Russa, and in hockey, a '90s coach would be Mike Keenan, or someone more recently would be Mike Babcock. Mm -hmm. uh, do you see that existing going forward in pro sports as someone that's a short shelf life coach because they? squeeze as most they can out of the players but usually it's a they got two or three year wall mike keenan he had usually one year and then players would get upset at him do you see that type of coach still existing at the pro level um yes um, or no and like i think yeah. so, some of it depends on the sport there, there, there's more tolerance in some sports for what they'll tolerate for performance than others. There are some sports, uh, basketball for one, pro basketball, the, the, there, there's not a lot of tolerance for if it's not working. And there's just so much of a spotlight, such a bright spotlight because the teams are so small and um, they, they play a pretty heavy schedule. 
And they they have a lot of really different kind of dynamics going on right now in, in basketball with some of the pro coaches that I talk to that are just like enormously stressful and hard for them to deal with. But they've got to figure it out quickly because even with contracts in place, their their contracts can be undone if they just can't get the team to perform. And if they can't figure out how to get, you know, less than 15 people in alignment, then they probably are in the wrong business. Um, and and they they won't be given much leeway to, to time-wise to make that happen. Uh, baseball, they'll, they'll be given a lot longer. Uh, football's a little bit more lenient. Hockey's a little less lenient, I would say. Um, but 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 basketball is the most stringent. Soccer, mm, they're the pro soccer. They're they're given a little bit of time somewhere in the middle. Does that answer your question? It was more of um, the tough coach that's like really hard on his players and speaking frankly like a hard ass. Do you that, think that mm-hmm. will work going forward with the type of uh, people that are now like the generation millennial, whatever they're called now. It's not. Do you think that is that gone out the window? Now you have to adapt. You have to, you have to adapt. And the, the older coaches that are adapting are doing well. The, the coaches that are in their say thirties and forties, um, they are adapting really well. Um, but I don't want to put necessarily an age restriction on this. I think it really has to do more with the individual person in terms of like, look at a coach such as, um, well, I'm not going to throw this one out there, but there are coaches that are out there that have adapted with times and they, um, they are still around, you know, 20, 30 years later, but the coaches that are the real, you know, hard nosed coaches, that's not flying anymore, especially with the athletes that are coming in in their 20s. That so just there's there's too much um, happening from a mental health perspective and too much awareness, which that's bad. Like that just is not tolerated. Um, it's really more about uh, almost having a kumbaya attitude that's going to allow people to, to stay in their roles. Okay, perfect. Thank you. I think, before I go to Anita, I think that's interesting. Think about the results of your your study, Kathy. I mean, the, the softer, for lack of a better term, versus right. what, what Tom's referring to. This that you know, like someone in my age grew up with coaches like that, right? That's right. just not. Is your your results? I think that was maybe your point, Tom. Really support that kind of trend. And yeah. I'm kind of half joking about Mike Babcock, but it's true. He's coaching at you know, a Canadian university hockey team, probably making one thirtieth of what he used to make in his last job. And he's I think got he's volunteering norm. He may he's, be volunteering. He's, oh, he's volunteering. So he keeps his Maple Leafs buyout is what it is. What it is. And but nobody's lining up Johnson to hire him. Coaching, he's the volunteer. But nobody's lining up to hire him, even though he's got a great track record because of that mentality, right? It's an interesting yes. great point. Yes. That's right. All right, Nina, thank thanks, Tom. Great question. I need it over to you. Oh, thank you. Actually, when you mentioned um, Mike Babcock, I had no idea that he was not with Toronto because he left Detroit to go to Toronto. But then I remember there was definitely things in the news as far as him being, you know, to use the millennials, toxic. So that was interesting. So I just had a quick question about importance of team dynamics, which we just touched on a little bit. Do you find it's a, more of a, a challenge or if there is a challenge with supporting DEI? as well as with team dynamics, um, because I think sometimes people might think team dynamics means people who are like them versus having the, the benefit or appreciation for 
for the differences that can make teams stronger and more successful in other ways, but yet still maybe work harder for the team dynamics part of it? Yeah, I think, uh, as a matter of fact, great question. I was having a, a conversation with one of my clients last week, one of my corporate clients about DEI. She's on a DEI team and she identifies herself as a, as, as a brown woman. And she was complaining about the fact that she didn't think that the DEI was really that effective. And we we were talking about team dynamics. And then I asked her about why she didn't think her, her DEI team was that effective. And she really couldn't put her finger on it. I said, well, what's your end game? What are you hoping to try to accomplish with this DE&I? And she's like, well, I think it has to do with trying to have better team dynamics or maybe um, different representation within the company as it relates to having an appreciation for others that, that are not like you. And, and I said, all right, well, I think the first thing that you need to do is to figure out based on what your strengths are and what you bring to the table being on this committee in this group, what, what is the goal of, of, of your group? How, how can you just, you know, get together and, and talk um, without some kind of a goal in mind? And so I, I, I don't, I think team dynamics and, and, DEI can can work in parallel with one another, but I don't think that you know they they should be necessarily looked at just separately and and, and ignored or or not at some point converge. I think that that, that needs to be DEI needs to get factored into team dynamics, um, but but you need to come up with what are the sort of ground rules for for how you go about doing that and and really what what's the goal of 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 you know the the two coming together and ultimately it needs to lead to a performance metric great thank you very much you're welcome yeah great great question and really you made that point at the end that's why coaches are such a great context for your research because if you don't perform no matter how good you are at the other characteristics you're not going to have your job right so we're really that's robust right. I mean, this Kathy, we've taken a lot of your time tonight. I mean, maybe we could, if anyone else has one more burning question, if not, I think we'll uh, we'll let everybody enjoy the rest of their Sunday evening, and then Connor will package this up to be shared with many more of our students. So, does anyone else have anything else they'd like to ask Kathy while you have the chance? It's a pretty good opportunity. And if I don't not, know if I saw Thomas, I mean, I will if nobody else wants to. Please go. Um, I'm right engaged in this coaching stuff. Uh, if you were to go, you like your top three authors or books that you would recommend for coaching of people or leading of people, other people, or a book that's been written, what's on your, I guess, what's on your Mount Rushmore? You know what? I'm going to be honest with you right now. I I literally, with bringing my third book out next next week or tomorrow, really officially, I have not had any time to be reading. I've been heads down the last four and a half months editing. So I wish I I'm going to have to get back to you on that one. I really am failing at at giving you a good answer. One of the books that I do like that is an interesting uh, book that has to do with the, the human teams is a book by Maureen Monte called Destination Unstoppable. That's the formula that I'm using for the sports teams right now that I'm looking at bringing into the corporate space. So Destination Unstoppable would be the, the book that I would recommend. And I believe she's coming out with another book called, I think it's called Play Like a Girl. 
and and I don't know if she's released that yet, but I heard that that was that book was in the works, which I thought was interesting. And I, although it's focused on sports, there are a lot of um, aspects to the information that can be um, placed and, and leveraged in the corporate space as well. So well, that'll be an upcoming main MBA LinkedIn post, Kathy's three leadership recommended books. <laughs> exactly. I need to do that. We'll give you a chance to get back to us on that. So thank you very much. <laughs> Pank, I saw you jumped on. Do you, Professor Pank, do you have a comment? I've, I have a real quick and, and real question, uh, Ms. Murphy. Uh, really enjoyed your talk. I'm, I'm a quant finance guy, so this was very new for me. But um, I can I can really see team uh, team dynamic issues in the world of uh, portfolio management teams, um, which which is my background. Ah. So the specific question is this: You have a well-performing team, it's humming along great, and a sudden paradigm shift happens like something changes. So let's say in this case, the Fed has gone from, you know, quantitative easing to quantitative tightening means raising sure. interest rates. Mm -hmm. So how the question applies to your work is, can a well-functioning team be retrained and can it perform, can it continue to perform when the environment suddenly changes? So yeah. let's say in education, you know, we, let's say, some university has it all figured out pre-COVID and then COVID came. So it's called a paradigm shift, you know? Sure. So in that, what is your recommendation? Can a team be retrained to be very specifically or the talent has to change? The or the leadership has to change? The, the team can just simply be retrained. And with the type of work specifically that I do, given your situation, what I would do is I would look to see which of the, the four human teams, if you will, in this case, would be the team to lean on to, to figure out what do we need to do strategically differently to be competitive or to address the situation? Um, what, what aspect of whether it be um, relating to, is this an execution challenge? Is this an influencing challenge? Is this a strategic challenge? Or is this a relationship challenge? And I would look to either um, one of those four teams with the people that have talents that are oriented towards one of those four quadrants, or I would, would ask a couple of the quadrants maybe to come together to figure out a solution. I'd ask my strategic-minded people on that team to figure out, along with maybe the influencing people on that team, how do we address this situation and quickly, and then put them to the task of figuring out solutions to um, make adjustments. So you don't need to change the leader in that in that situation and you don't need to fire anybody. You can you can chances are work with the people that you have. You just have to work differently and, and you have to come up with another method of how to how to um, address the challenge and, and come up with a solution that that's going to be um, more clever than perhaps your competition and one perhaps that no one else has, has come up with. That, that's a very positive take, and I, I see the a great value in that because I often hear that you know old dog cannot be taught new tricks, and so the you know the corporate strategies nowadays they're like very short term tactical rather than strategic. They're like, okay, we need to just change the whole biosphere here. And they don't, they don't, they really don't, and that's that's really unfortunate when when that uh, thinking is is applied because. Your, your strongest assets, as we all know, right, are the, the people oftentimes that have been in the trenches doing the work 
And let's face it, it typically nowadays takes most employees three to six months to ramp up. You don't often have the, that kind of time in your favor when you have to make hard shifts like you just described, like with quantitative easing occurring and all the different um, aspects of what's happening in the financial market. You have to respond quickly. You don't have three to six months. Or even COVID and, you know, distance education. I mean, Anita is in my class and, you know, so many others. And we've been, we've been talking quantitative finance through a digital media. So it has its own challenges, but advantages as well, you know. That's right, exactly. So if you can orient your your people with your their positivity um, towards figuring out where where's where are the bright lights, where's where's the glass half full in each of these situations that we could consider, um, pair them up with your strategic people, and you can come up with some and your get your ideation people in there, get your futuristic people in there, um, and you can come up with some amazingly beautiful solutions to get you out of just about any jam. And I've seen this time and time again happen. Thank you. I like that cup that you have there. Which which year is that? This one. Yeah. Oh, I just I just got this. <laughs> no, Brand I'm new. waiting for mine. Nice. I'd like, I'd like one too. <laughs> Honor, can you get us some of those? That'd be great. <laughs> Just for the folks who attended today, you know. Anyway, thank you very much. Very nice. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for that question. That was a great back and forth. I know. I know we've went a little longer than we usually do tonight. But that was great discussion, and I think. You know, there's nothing wrong with moving people around on the bus, as you both just said, versus, you know, re, you know, kicking them off the bus and getting new people. That's a great takeaway because right. it is definitely, as you both said. And all the new yeah. people will be from the other bus. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they'll it's be from the other bus. And then you have to, like what Kathleen was saying, you have to retrain and then the whole, you know. It's about maximizing. It's about you're maximizing your returns. Yeah, you're on a bumpy road, as you said, too. That's great. Thank you, everyone. I think we'll uh, we'll we'll cut it off there for the evening because it's gotten quite late. If anybody does want a one-on-one -on -one or any comments with myself, just fire me a note and we can jump on afterwards. But I think we'll let everybody go this evening. A huge thanks to Kathy for your time and your insights and everyone for the questions. That was great. We'll <laughs> package you. this up wonderfully. And we are going to keep you on the hook for a, either an email or if you want to post it yourself for your three leadership book recommendations. So I will. I will. I will. Uh, I'll uh, get on that first thing tomorrow morning. <laughs> Not an easy. Ah, the week is fine. We're always looking for content, right, Connor? That's good. That's good. <laughs> Thank you, Enjoy your Sunday. What's left of it. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you, everybody. Good night. Good night.